There's a lot of Christians who have a theology that's very similar to the Beatles. They kind of summarize God down to one attribute, love. Now, I love the love of God, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, right? Love's probably my favorite attribute of God. I, I like that for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have. I think that's awesome. And I'm very thankful to know that my Father in heaven loves me. God is definitely love, but he is not only love. It might be our favorite attribute to sing about on earth, but what are they singing about in heaven? When we get a glimpse into heaven, in Isaiah chapter 6 or Revelation 4, they're singing a song that's more like this. is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. In heaven, it seems like they're fixated on the holiness of God, that He's set apart, that He's other than us, that us and our sin down here has nothing to do with Him and His presence and His perfect and glorious splendor, His holiness. So on earth, we love to sing about the love of God. In heaven, they're praising Him for His holiness, and they seem fixated and focused on that. Have you ever thought about what do they know about God in hell? What's the main attribute that comes to their mind when they think about God in hell? Open your Bible with me to Nahum chapter 1. And we're going to get a glimpse into what it looks like to be a judged people here. The city of Nineveh. We have an oracle concerning Nineveh. Nahum chapter 1. An oracle is a, a heavy word, a burden you could even say it means. We have a very serious, a heavy word coming on this city of Nineveh, the capital city of Syria. It's a written message. It's the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And Nahum, he didn't see God up into heaven necessarily. He's not talking about the love of God to forgive us for our sins and give us a new life. No, here's what Nahum is talking about. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. It says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. We're going to study tonight all the way down to verse 7. But before we even get down to that, just look at verse 2 again. And you'll notice one word here showing up three different times. Avenging, avenging, and vengeance along with jealousy and wrath. The way the Lord is being presented here to the people of Nineveh is not about His love. That's not what we're celebrating here. It's not about His holiness. No, what we're saying is that God is a God of vengeance. Three times we say it. And when we emphasize something three times in the Hebrew, we know we're trying to make a point. I got a question you, I want to ask you tonight, and I think it's a really important question for you to answer. Does your God get angry? Does the God that you believe in take vengeance on his enemies and pour out wrath on his adversaries because that's the God that Nahum is writing about to the people of Nineveh. Three times it says that God is a God of vengeance. Let's start with a de definition of what vengeance is. Here, here's something you could throw down. Vengeance is punishment inflicted for wrong committed. Let's put that down. You do the crime, you're going to do the time. That's the idea here. You have done something wrong against God, there will be punishment. There will be reparations. There will be a payment that you could refer to as vengeance. And so this is how Nahum begins in a poetic way. This is a, a, a written book here. And he's writing in, in a poetic way in the Hebrew language to say that God is a God of vengeance. Now you and I have never in our entire lives fully experienced the vengeance of God. The wrath of God. The judgment of God. 
And I think that many people, because they've never experienced something, they therefore begin to think that maybe it's not even true or it's never going to happen or it's something different, see? And so just because we've never seen God's vengeance or judgment or wrath necessarily doesn't mean that those aren't attributes of God. Clearly, that's what Nahum was warning the city of Nineveh was coming towards them. Here's what we've known about God. Verse 3, it says, the Lord is slow to anger. See, I really like that part right there, right? Macrothumia. He's got a a long suffering. He's got a very long fuse. And before God blows up, he's very patient with us. See, we, we really like that, right? Then it says that he is great in power. And that could mean power to judge, power to destroy, could mean power to save, power to heal. He's great in power. He's slow to anger. We're more used to that. We like that. But then it says here, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Nobody's getting away with it. Everything that has ever been done that is wrong will be made right. It will be paid for. God will make sure of it because he is a God of vengeance. Even when you look at lists of the attributes of God, it's going to be hard to find lists of the attributes of God that even have things like vengeance or jealousy or wrath on them. But that's how Nahum is starting out. And that's something about God that he thinks the Ninevites have perhaps overlooked. Remember the history of Nineveh when Jonah came there and warned them in 40 days they were going to be overthrown. There was a massive turning. There was a movement of repentance. The people came to God and maybe as time passed, maybe they thought about when Jonah had said they were going to be judged, but then they were never judged because God relented of his disaster because they repented of their sins. Maybe they began to take advantage of the grace of God and to begin to presume upon his mercy and to begin to think that forgiveness and love was all there was to God and if they started sinning it's okay because God would be gracious and would forgive them and Nahum wants them to know no he's a God of vengeance see point number one we need to worship God for all of his attributes we can't just pick out the parts of God that we like and worship him for the parts that appeal to us as sinners here on earth right now We need to worship God for who he is as he's revealed to us in the scripture. And so we can't make, we got to make sure that we're not just saying, well, I like these aspects of God. I like these attributes. Yeah, I don't really want to think about these that much. Don't really ever want to do a word study on that. Never really interested in learning more about that. No, what you're doing there is you're making an idol. That's not the real God. It's some version of God that kind of suits you. That fits with how you want God to be. You and I can't figure out who God is. We can't comprehend him. The only way that you and I know who God is, is he has decided to reveal himself to us. And he said, through the prophet Nahum, to the people of Nineveh, that he was a God of vengeance. Will you worship him for that? Is that okay with you, that God is going to take every wrong that's been committed, and he's going to punish it? He's going to make it right? Or do we get to pick and choose who God is? You know, if you listen just to the worship songs, like, like you can do this. You can go onto YouTube and you can say the top 25 worship songs in America. And you might come to the conclusion after looking at the words of the top 25 worship songs in America that the God we're worshiping right now in our churches doesn't involve vengeance or wrath or jealousy or, or, or any kind of judgment. That's not the God that we want to talk about. Well, no wonder our nation feels so free to run headlong into sin when there's no God who's going to take vengeance on his enemies. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, 35. I didn't just dig this out of, out of one passage where, oh, we're going to talk about the vengeance of God because you found it the one place it's in the Bible, some place we've never heard of. Nahum, okay, I see what you're doing here. Once you start actually studying vengeance, it, you'll find it quite often. You'll find it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we think of vengeance as a bad thing. I never like it when it's a revenge movie. I, I know we're not supposed to take revenge. That's the command to us. But the reason we're not supposed to take revenge is because God says throughout scripture, vengeance is what? What does God say about it? Vengeance is what? It doesn't belong to you. 
It's not your job. It's not your role. It's not your right. You're not the one who was sinned against. You're not ultimately the one who has really been wronged. No, we're not supposed to take vengeance because God wants to make it clear in Scripture. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So he's claiming it. He's owning it. You might be ashamed that you have a God of vengeance. He's not ashamed of it. He wants everybody to know. Don't do vengeance. That's my business. It's mine. Here it is in the law, in the foundation. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Here's the first time he says it. It's quoted in other places, like Romans chapter 12 talks about it. We'll get to Hebrews 10 in a minute. But look at it here. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. It says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. You know, I, my mom... When she was doing cross-stitch my entire time when I was growing up, she never cross-stitched that one. You know what I'm saying? Like for some reason, I've never walked into anybody's bathroom. I've seen a lot of scripture in people's restrooms and their living rooms. Haven't seen Deuteronomy 32.5 up in anybody's home. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. There's coming a day when they're going to fall. The day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. See this idea of vengeance and even this line right here in Deuteronomy 32, 35, for the time when their foot shall slip, that was the text for the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of your nation, America, by a man named Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it on Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, just the second little phrase there, for the time when their foot shall slip. He preached his sermon on that phrase. I don't know if you've ever read the sermon. I would strongly encourage you. You could read it online. uh, We're still having high schoolers in America read it as an example of literature today as they learn about the time period of the Great Awakening, which is still studied in the textbooks today. And it is said that when Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon in 1741, it was a sermon on the danger of the unconverted. And he preached it in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8th, 1741. Um, So we're coming up on the anniversary of this famous sermon. It is said that when he preached this, people were literally crying out and weeping and wailing for mercy while he was preaching. Because what he really tried to do, and he was one of the great philosophers, even people who are not Christians consider Jonathan Edwards one of the great thinkers in American history. And he's not just trying to scare people about hell. He's not just trying to shock and awe people that judgment is coming. He's trying to actually logically take people through to the conclusion that many of them are going to go to hell and what's that going to be like and how did other people end up in hell and how might you end up there because I bet nobody really ever planned to go there, yet we know there are many people who are there, so how did that happen? And he really tries to logically take you through and think it through, and I wanted to share some of the things that he says in his sermon with you here tonight. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight and these places are not seen. He starts to paint this picture like you're walking along and the ground underneath you is rotten like on one of those rickety bridges with the wooden boards and they're rotten and at any moment your foot could go through the board and slip and you could fall. Just because you can't see death coming doesn't mean your next step is not your last. That's how he starts. And then he says, I wish we could go and speak to the people who have already fallen and are in hell. I wish we could interview them, if it were so, so that we could come to speak with them and could inquire of them one by one, whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell, ever to be the subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply, no, I never intended to come here. And so he preached this sermon for the purpose of awakening unconverted persons in the church that he was speaking at. 
And he gave this famous word picture. He said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you suffered again to awaken this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop into hell, O sinner. Consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. How much do you like spiders? How much do you want them to crawl all over your hand? He says, it's like there's a fire and the hand of God is there and you're a spider in his hand. And at any moment, he could decide that he wants nothing to do with you and he could flick you away. He could let go of you and you would fall into a wide and bottomless pit of misery and endless suffering. That's the picture that he's painting. And he, and he continues to preach it through logically to his everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. That's a picture of the vengeance of God. He goes on to say, how dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. This is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again. However moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it whether you be young or old. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who they are or in what seat they sit or what thoughts they now have. It may be they are now at ease and they hear all these things without much disturbance and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person and but one in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing would it be to think of? If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up lamentable and bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. And let every one of you that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged, or young people, or little children, let you now hear, can, hear, hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord that is a day of such great favor to some will doubtless be a day of remarkable vengeance to others. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. 
The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. And people began to weep and they began to well wail and they repented of their sins and they were saved and God gave a great awakening in our nation because we started talking about an attribute of God that is often overlooked his vengeance and that nobody nobody in this room is going to get away with living a life of sin no one Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 where it continues to expound upon this idea. And particularly, this is, this is a relevant passage for us here at church tonight because you're at church on a Wednesday night to talk about revival in America. Maybe you're very confident that you're a Christian. Maybe you feel very assured of your salvation. Well, look what it says here. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, if we go on sinning deliberately, if we continue in sin, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. No, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, who is this passage for? Is it for the people out there in the world living it up in sin, not caring at all? No, this is for people, it says in verse 26, people who have received the knowledge of the truth. This is for people who come to church and they know the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know the truth of the gospel of Jesus? Have you heard the good news that Jesus is the Christ? He's the son of God who humbled himself to become a man, that he lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live and he died the death that you deserve to die and he rose again and now he offers to anyone who would believe in him everlasting life. That's, is, that, is that good news to anybody here this evening? And you, you've maybe even heard that you're supposed to turn from that sin that you were living in. And you're supposed to trust in what Jesus has done. And if you repent and believe in the gospel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Okay, that's the knowledge of the truth. That's what it, that's what it means there. Back in chapter 6 verse 1, it talked about a foundation of repentance and faith. See? Somebody who knows that truth. And then they deliberately go on sinning. They keep on sinning. It says all that person has left is vengeance to look forward to. A fearful expectation. You are like one of those spiders in the hands of an angry God ready to flick you into the fire. We're talking about here people who know the truth, might even profess the truth, might even practice some of the truth, but yet they continue on in their sin. See, it really doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian really doesn't matter if you come to church. really doesn't matter if you've done a bunch of good things and you're kind to other people and you've gone to some foreign country on a missions trip in the name of Jesus. If you continue to practice sin, you are not saved. That's what the Bible says. Now, all you have to look forward to, no matter how many good things you may profess or you may have practiced in your life, if there is still sin going on in your life that you don't turn from, that you don't confess, that you don't leave behind as you follow Jesus Christ, if you still have sin going on in your life, all you have to look forward to, my friends, it says, is a fearful expectation of judgment. And yet we have so few sinners in the church who are afraid because they don't understand the vengeance of God. 
And they don't understand the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You can claim Christianity all you want. On that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. But they're going to be like, well, we did this great thing. And we did this great thing. And we did this great thing. And he says, no, no. You are workers of what? What does he say to them? Workers of what? Lawlessness. He doesn't care about the great things you do. He doesn't care about the great things you know. If you continue to practice sin, Hebrews 10, 26 says, you know the truth, but you keep on sinning. Fear, that's how you should feel tonight. And a certain dread creeping in that someday you're going to pay for this sin that you continue in. That's how you should feel. Well, this is sounding pretty harsh here tonight. This is sounding like one of those Old Testament messages here tonight. I'm glad we live in the New Testament era of grace. You ever hear anybody say stuff like that? Right? A lot of people think that. Oh, yeah, this is an intense message. This is what they used to be like in the Old Testament. That's what it talks about here in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And with two or three witnesses, they accused you. They all agreed. They would take you out of the camp there in Israel and they would stone you with big rocks that would crush your skull and would kill you. Just, be, just if you disrespected your parents, you could be killed like that. You could be stoned. And we hear stories like that and we think to ourselves, sure I'm glad I will not live in Old Testament times. Anybody want to say amen to that? Oh yeah, yeah, you know. I've always thought that would make for very effective Old Testament youth ministry. You stone one child, revival breaks out with everybody else, right? I mean, that's the Old Testament idea right there. We're going to have such a, a heightened sense of the fear of God and we're going to have such a desire to turn away from wickedness and to obey His commands because there are such great consequences. There's such great judgment. There's such great vengeance. And we, and we in our New Testament church, knowing about the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that has been given to all through Christ, we think, oh, I'm glad I'm not living in those times. Can you read the next verse with me? Verse 29. It says, how much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Excuse me, but did it just say that people in the New Testament times are going to get worse punishment than the people in the Old Testament times? Did, did we just read that together? Did I, did, I, did I interpret that right? That that was saying that people who, let's just look at the three things it says there. People who have trampled underfoot the Son of God. God so loved the world, He gave His Son. His Son dies. And we trample His sacrifice underfoot as we continue in sin. And then it says we profane the blood of the covenant, that blood that washes us pure, that makes us clean from our sin. Well, we just step over the blood of Jesus. We know about it. We sing about it at, at church, but we keep sinning. And then it says we've got the Spirit of grace convicting us, working on us, trying to show us our sin, turn us around, give us that new life. But we've outraged the Spirit of grace. We've pushed grace to Side and we've continued to sin. Oh, you think it was bad in the Old Testament? Well, now you've rejected the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You've trampled over His blood and you've said no to the Holy Spirit. How much worse punishment do you think we're going to get than the people in the Old Testament? Because now it's gotten personal. Now the Father has sent His Son and you have said no to the Jesus Christ's death when you continue in sin. This is something I really understand. I really relate to this as a father because I have a strong affinity for my children as I would imagine every dad in the room does. And I had this experience one time where I was in a parking lot of a, of a crowded mall and I saw a car back out and it, and it hit a child. The, the driver was not looking where he was going when he was backing out and there was a little child walking behind the car and the car hit the child. And I remember noticing the reaction of the parents. The shock and outrage of the parents as they realized that their child had just been struck. And as a dad, I could not help but feel for them to relate to them and I could not help but imagine what it would be like to, for a car to back out and to put my son's face in there and to see him get hit by a backed out car. And to see him, like in some movie, there on the pavement with a pool of blood coming out of the back of his head. Because let's say you were in a car and you weren't looking where you were going and you backed out and there was a child you couldn't see and now the child is on the ground and there's a pool of blood in the parking lot. 
and you realize what you've done. You step out of your car and you see blood that's been spilled and it's you that is responsible. And you lock eyes with the father of the child. And the father looks at you and you look at the father and you jump back in your car and you drive away and you don't think the father's going to come after you? You don't think you've just angered the father? His son shed his blood for your sin and you say, excuse me, I would like to do more sin. And you don't think God's going to get angry. No, he's going to take vengeance on every single hypocrite in this church that does that. And he will require the blood of his son at your expense. That's what it's saying. You should be terrified in your seat tonight if you know the truth and you continue in sin. There should not be one comfortable feeling in your body right now. Because the Father is angry. And I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before. But that's the truth of what the Bible says. That there are people who go to church all the time and act like good people on the outside, but they continue in their sin and the way they treat their spouse and the private secret sins that they don't ever tell anybody about. And they continue in these things over and over again and they are stepping over the body of Christ, stepping on his blood and pushing the spirit of grace away as they move on to more sin. And it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And people understood that when Jonathan Edwards was preaching that day and that was the beginning of a great awakening in America or at least to help in advancing a great awakening in America because God was an angry God, a vengeful God and you could not just not believe. See, we, we act like there's a category out there. Oh, they don't believe. Oh, they don't have that religion. Oh, that's not what it's... No, people who don't believe, people who have heard the truth of Jesus Christ and they don't believe, that's called rejection, Okay? That's called saying no to Jesus. Saying no to the Son. And the Father is going to get angry when you reject His Son. Now it says, Jonathan Edwards, he, he preached this, and here's why, here's what he said. When he preached one of his sermons, he said, When do you expect that it will be more likely that you should be awakened than now? You are in a Christless condition, and yet without doubt intend to go to heaven and therefore intend to be converted sometime before you die. But this is not going to happen until you are first awakened. So here we are tonight. We're talking about the anger and vengeance of God. That's what Nahum's about. And we're saying that if you know the truth and you continue in sin, you should be afraid that the anger and vengeance of God is upon you. And right now he's holding you in his hand. He's not holding you like he holds those who are in Christ, the kind of holding where he never lets you go. No, his hand hasn't really snatched you out of the fire yet. His mighty hand and his outstretched arm haven't reached down and grabbed you yet. No, right now, he, you're just like a spider on his hand, and he's going to just maybe let you go and fall into the flame. Hey, now would be a good time for you to ask yourself, if I'm not going to get saved tonight, when am I ever going to get saved in my life? If I can hear a message like this, and I can go home after this, and I can keep on doing that same sin, if, if, when are you going to get awakened, Edward says? I mean, undoubtedly, you don't want to go to hell. Undoubtedly, you're not feeling very comfortable about what we're talking about here tonight. Well, when is the turn from sin and the trust in Christ going to happen? And why not now be the time that you get awakened? What gives you any thought that the future is more likely to get awakened when you're hearing this sermon right now? There are people in the room that need to get saved tonight. And there are people in the room that will not get saved tonight. And they might remember tonight when they are in the fires of hell. And that should really bother those of us who are saved tonight here in the room. It should never be okay for me or for you that people are going to hell all around us. Sometimes people look at me and they, get, and they look like I get a little intense. That's the look people give me sometimes. Like, man, you get a little intense sometimes, you know? I'm not sure about when you, why you get intense like that. Well, I can tell you why I get intense like that. Because I went to my grandma's funeral. That's why I get intense like that. 
Sometimes when somebody dies, you know, you hear a story, well, like maybe they could have professed faith because so-and-so was talking to them on their bed and so we can pray. We hope that they professed faith at the last minute. There were no stories like that when my grandma died. When my grandma died, it was very clear that she did not believe in Jesus Christ. She did not repent of her sins. I don't know if she would have agreed with the idea that there were sins that she needed to repent of in her life. And I sat there at my grandma's funeral and there was nothing that I could ever do for my grandma again. It was done. See? And I started realizing I can't do anything for my grandma, but I can go find somebody else and I can try to talk to them. See, it bothers me every day that people I know are going to hell and it can't be okay with me. And it can't be okay with you. So we do these things in America. We do these things. We have these things called hashtags. Have you ever heard what a hashtag is, right? It's like this catchy way to, to, to get everybody's attention on some kind of news or some kind of trending topic. And, and here's what we do in America. This is now the pattern of how this is working in our social media age. There, there's a de- disaster that happens. Maybe it's a natural disaster. Maybe it's a tsunami. Maybe it's some kind of, some kind of flood. Maybe it's a, a terrorist attack. Maybe it's something that ISIS is doing and they've blown something up or there's people in the streets of of Paris and they're running around shooting people or or maybe it's just we seem to have a lot of people who just go around shooting here in America for different reasons. And immediately when that happens, all of a sudden, all over social media, what you see is pray for France, pray for Orlando, pray for San Bernardino, pray for this. And, And I just think to myself, you know, the people that we're praying for, they're already dead now. Like, I want to pray for the families, and I want to pray for those who are mourning the loss of their loved ones. But those people who just died in that horrible way have no more chance to be saved anymore. It's too late to pray for them, the people who have died. And I wonder, what did we do to pray for them when they were alive, when there was a chance? When they could have heard a message like this and they could have responded. It seems to me like we're awakened to the reality of how bad things are after they get really bad. When what if we could pray about it beforehand? So I want to say right now that America is going down. America is going to hell. And now is the time before it dies to pray for America. So we're starting a new hashtag here tonight at Compass HP. It's probably not new. Other people have probably done it. But we're starting the Pray for America hashtag. And I want to encourage you to pray for America like it's your dead grandma who just died and went to hell. But now, before she dies, like we could do something about it. Like God could hear us and he could save people and people who are being held in the fire. See, that's what Jonathan Edwards is trying to say. He's trying to say that it's only the hand of God. It's this common grace of God. It's this mercy of God that he hasn't judged you yet. That there's no vengeance yet. There's no wrath yet. And what we, we are talking when we pray to the one person who can do something about America. To God in heaven. And we can beg him, God, don't take vengeance on these people. Don't judge our fellow Americans. Don't, don't, don't pour your wrath on this neighbor of mine, this coworker of mine, my family member. God, instead of letting them go into the fire, snatch them from the fire. God, instead of letting them die in their sin, save them from their sin. You can pray tonight and it can matter in people's lives. There should be a sense of urgency. Someone I know is going to die and go to hell. What am I going to do about it? Yeah, it's pretty intense. And we don't pray with enough intensity for the souls of those who are perishing around us. So point number two, let's get it down like this. We need to pray for America. Vengeance is coming. For a time is going to come when our foot is going to fall. Like all the other great superpowers in the history of planet Earth, you notice that pick a nation. I don't know what your nation is that you like, the Romans, the Greeks. I don't know who you think was an awesome nation in history. But if we're the superpower now, then that means they're no longer the superpower. Uh, Superpowers are designed to fall. And it's only a matter of time till America falls. And I would much rather see a great turn in our nation, a great movement of salvation, a lot of people putting their faith in Christ. I'd much rather see revival than vengeance. And so we got to pray for it. Thank God we have a God who would rather save than judge. Anybody want to say amen to that? 
Thank, yeah, he's a God of vengeance, but he is a God of salvation. And that's why he gives these kind of messages, okay? Now go back to Nahum chapter 1. Look at this with me. Why would you write something so harsh? Sounds, sounds kind of impolite. Sounds a little insensitive to start out with vengeance, 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 right? Why would you try to speak in such a powerful way? Because you're trying to wake people up to the reality of what's about to happen. People who don't see it. People who think they're walking down the HB pier when really they're at the Seal Beach pier and they don't see that yet. That's why you get so intense in your language. And he paints this picture halfway through verse 3. He says, his way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Here's, here's pictures now of God. God is in this book here, Nahum, like a natural disaster. He's like a whirlwind. He's like a storm that's coming through. And here come the clouds, and they're like the dust of his feet. Can you picture a storm coming in? The wind's kicking up. You can feel it in the air. Here comes a storm. And it rebukes the sea and makes it dry. It dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel, lush, lush regions that you would go to. Think of like Yosemite. Think of some beautiful place that we would all want to go to. The bloom of Lebanon. Some forests. The cedars of Lebanon. Like the, like the sequoias maybe. Picture like beautiful national parks and landmarks that we go to enjoy the beauty of creation. Well, they're all withering here when this storm comes through. And the mountains are quaking before him. It's like he's causing earthquakes. The hills are melting. The earth heaves before him. That's a very San Andreas Fault, Southern California picture right there. The world and all who dwell in it. See, here's the picture. A great storm of vengeance is now off the coast of the American country. And it's about to blow through. And it's about to wipe us out. And now is the time to have a sense of urgency that I need to pray for America now before it's too late and I can't pray anymore. And there's nothing more that I can do for my fellow countrymen. Go to Romans chapter 9. I want you to see how Paul had this perspective. Why was Paul going from city to city, planting all these churches, putting his life on the line every day for the gospel? You know, Paul got a little Old Testament justice. They took him out of town one day and they stoned him. They threw big rocks designed to crush his skull and kill him, except the rocks didn't kill him. And Paul, he got up, he brushed the dust off of himself. And what did he do? After they stoned him with big rocks outside of town, what did Paul do when he got back up? You guys tell me. Anybody know? He went back into town. Back into town. Why would you do that, Paul? Here's why. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So if I walked up to you and I said, hey, I got to tell you something. And what I'm about to tell you is true. Okay, I'm not lying. Okay, before the Holy Spirit and my conscience, I'm a, I'm, do you understand that he's about to tell you something that you're not going to believe, but he wants you to know this is the real deal. Okay, in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Wow, that's not what I would expect from the super apostle who's planting churches and leading people to Christ. Why does he have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Now I'm going to tell you something you might not believe, but I want you to know it's true. I'm not lying. In fact, the Holy Spirit's in my conscience. They bear witness that what I'm about to say, they'll be my witnesses that what I'm about to say is true. I feel terrible all the time. I feel bad. I have this anguish. It's inside of me. It's in my bowels. It's just this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. And this is why. Because I know what's going to happen to my countrymen, the Israelites. I know where they're going. I know the vengeance, the judgment, the wrath that is coming upon them. And Paul goes so far as to say, I wish myself accursed, anathema, damned to hell. I wish that I could be the spider that gets tossed into the fire so that they could be saved and pulled out of it. I would trade places with them if I could. That's the level of compassion that Paul feels for his countrymen. Do you feel anything close to that for America? Are you going to sit on your high and mighty recliner chair and watch the world burn on Fox News and CNN? Or do you care that they're burning? See, if you care, you're going to pray. Let's get some subpoints down under pray for America. We, we need to pray for America with compassion for your countrymen. With compassion for your countrymen. 
Like you want to see your nation revived, not destroyed in vengeance. You want to see people saved, not damned to hell. And in fact, if there was something you could do about it, if there was something you could do about it, you would look at your neighbor. You would look at your coworker. You would look at your grandma, your family member, and you would say, Lord, if you can somehow trade me for them so that they don't experience eternal punishment, I'll take their place. What a passion for lost people. No wonder God used this man to lead many people to Christ because he cared about his countrymen. Do we care about people like that? Do we have this sense of compassion that we have anguish in our heart? I mean, do we live like hell is a real place and people we know are going there? Do we believe in hell here at Compass HP? Because if you believe in hell, it's going to affect the way that you pray for people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. You're not going to see it as they don't believe in Jesus. No, they're rejecting Jesus. And there's going to be wrath and vengeance. And they got to change their mind. They got to turn from that before it's too late. God, please grab them out of the fire. Save them. Go to James chapter 5, verse 16. <coughs> James chapter 5, verse 16. You know, America, back in the days when we were doing a little bit better, when the church was a little bit stronger, when people had kind of a foundation that there was a God and there was sin, and they knew the idea of Jesus Christ, when that was still pervasive in America, Christians used to have a reputation. A couple of things Christians used to be referred to in this country. One was that we were God what? Anybody know? God fearers. See, because we knew about the vengeance. We knew about the judgment. See, and that fear is what ultimately led to our salvation because we didn't want that. We turned away from it, right? We were God fearers. We were also known as prayer what? What were we known as? Prayer. See, they go together. If you have the fear of God, see, first thing you've got to do here tonight is you've got to make sure that you can hear a sermon about going to hell and you can know with absolute confidence because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you've repented of your sin, because you've seen God work in your life, you can say, no, that's not me. I'm not going to hell. Praise the Lord. But see, then if you think about that and you think about the reality of people and suffering millions and millions of ages of horrific misery, as Edward said. See, your heart has to go out to those people then. And you have to care about it, and you have to want to do something about it. And you think, well, what can I do about the souls of men? I can't save anyone. Well, what you can do is you can talk to the God who can save people. And you can ask him to do it. And he's already told you that God's will, his desire, is for all men to be what? So you're asking him to do something you know he already wants to do. You know that's his inclination, his will. But I think that we don't think our prayers are going to matter. I bet if we got honest and we searched our hearts, do you really think that your prayers are going to keep somebody out of hell? I bet there's people in this room that would have a hard time believing that your prayers matter and the souls, the eternal destination of other people's souls. But look what James chapter 5 verse 16 says. Look, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be what? What does it say there? That you may be if we confess our sins, if we pray for one another, there's some kind of healing that takes place. And then it says this. Now this is scripture. Okay? This is true. This is from God. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you are a righteous person, your prayer, the prayers that you pray to God in the secret place between you and Him when it's just the two of you, that there will be great power in your prayers, effectiveness from your prayers, that God will hear your prayers and answer them. Do you believe that? Well, that's what the scripture said. So there's two options. Either one, you're not a righteous person, and that's why you don't think God's going to answer your prayers, because you know there's something between you and God that may be continuing in sin that might be happening. Or you just have a hard time believing that God would listen to someone like you and that it would really make a big difference. But look what it says next, verse 17. Elijah was a man like you with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. That's pretty impressive right there, my friends. I mean, imagine if you could control the weather. It would be nice if one of you could, because then we could finally have actual accurate forecasts. You know what I'm saying? That would be great. But it, what is the point of it talking about Elijah and all this time with no rain? The point is, 
He's a man just like you. And he prayed something, and God did what he asked for. God heard his prayer, and not only did he just hear it, he answered it. Do we believe in the power of prayer here at this church? Do you believe specifically that your prayers have power because God hears you as one of his righteous people? We need prayer warriors in America. There is a battle going on. We are losing. Souls are going to hell. And we need some people to say, I'm going to fight for the souls of my fellow countrymen. And how are we going to fight? In prayer, that's how we're going to fight. Prayer warriors. The most important thing that you will probably do in any given day is something that happens when you are alone with God when you pray praying for the souls of men. Let's pray with confidence God hears you. Let's get that down for our second dash. We're going to pray for America. We're going to pray with compassion like we care that our fellow Americans are going to hell. And we are going to pray with confidence that prayer, the prayer of a righteous person, it's effective. God answers it. Things happen. We're going to pray with faith that God is going to hear us and answer us. You got people praying for other people to get saved and even the way they're praying it is they're acting like they're not really sure it's going to happen. We need to do away with the, the prayers that are of little faith and we need to ask God with confidence and boldness because we understand it's not our prayers, it's his power, but we're asking him to do something and he wants to answer us and he wants to save Go to Genesis chapter 18. You see a great example of how uh, a man of God prays this kind of way. Here in Genesis chapter 18, a man who walked with God, a man that is known as the father of those who have faith, uh, Father Abraham. And he had a, a relative that he was concerned about. Anybody know <coughs> the name of Abraham's relative that he was concerned about? Who, who was that? And where did Lot live? Anybody, anybody know here? Sodom and Gomorrah. You heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire fell out of the sky and consumed them. Talk about judgment. Talk about vengeance. And Abraham, he had some angels come and visit him. And he had a sense of what was going to happen in Sodom. Where someone he cared about, his relative Lot, lived there. And so he was in the same situation that you and I find ourselves in. We know people who are going to be judged. What are we going to do about it? Abraham gives us a great example of how you go to God and how you appeal to God in prayer to not judge people that you love and care about, but to instead save them. This is a master class in prayer right here from Father Abraham, Genesis 18, verse 22. So the men, the angels, turned from there and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spirit for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now that's a great argument right there. I mean, that is crafty praying right there. I mean, you're judge, you're just, don't you have to do what is right? You can't judge the wicked and the righteous together. That's not righteous, that's not who you are. That's a great way to pray. He's appealing to God based on God's attributes, based on who God is. He's saying, God, I know who you are. You're like this, you told me so. You revealed yourself to me. And since you're like this, act like this in a way that goes with your character. This is a genius appeal right here. We need to pray, as a third sub-point here, with appeal to his attributes. You need to, we need to say, hey God, you're a God of vengeance. We understand. We admit that we deserve to be judged. God, you're a God of wrath. We understand. But we know you're a God of mercy. We know you're a God of grace. And we appeal to God based on who he is. And we hear Abraham is using the fact that God is the judge of all the earth and he judges in a just way. And, and he judges the wicked are judged and the righteous are not judged. And he's saying because of that, because you're a judge and a righteous judge, he's actually using that attribute to talk God out of judgment. That's some pretty good prayer right there. If there's 50 righteous, God, will you preserve America for the sake of your righteous ones, your saints, your holy ones, in whom is all your delight, Lord? Will you preserve America on behalf of the Christians that are praying to you for revival in this nation? Will you hear our prayers on behalf of your people, God? 
What a great appeal. And then Abraham, he goes for it. And he, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. See, this is how you pray right here. Who am I to pray to you, God? But suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? See, see how now he's kind of making it, what about five, right? I mean, this is all very, very crafty here. And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20. Now he's going in increments of 10. He's getting ambitious in his faith here. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place, and the city was destroyed. Well, if only he could have gone down to, God, if there's one righteous person, will you not destroy it? That's all there was, was Lot. And he got Lot out of there. He, I mean, God even saved the one righteous guy out of the city. Do you see, that is how, are we praying that way for America? Are we thinking about God's attributes and then finding ways to approach him and to speak to him based on who he is, to appeal to his character and to say, God, because you're like this, act like this, show us this, do this. We need to pray for America before the country dies. Now, some people might think a sermon like this is, is inappropriate. And Edwards definitely got a lot of criticism for preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's a famous sermon in American history, but there were a lot of haters. There were a lot of people who did not think you should preach in such a way. And Edwards, later on, responding to his critics, he says, Some say it is unreasonable to frighten people into heaven. But I think it is reasonable to try to frighten people away from hell. They stand upon its brink and are about to fall into it and are unaware of their danger. It, is it not a reasonable thing to frighten a person out of a house on fire? See, why are we afraid of this message? Why are we afraid of making people afraid when the house is burning down? See, that's what Nahum, go back to Nahum. That's what Nahum is trying to say. He's trying to say, look, Nineveh, there is a whirlwind and a storm that is coming. And when this whirlwind and storm come, no one is going to survive. The mountains aren't going to make it. The hills aren't going to make it. All of these beautiful places we like to go on our vacations, they aren't going to make it. I mean, the earth is going to quake. I mean, nobody is going to make it through this. Look at verse 6. It says, who can stand before his indignation? Who's going to stand up when it's time to be judged by God? It says here, who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Like, like big old rocks, big old formations of rock, mountainsides. They're just breaking in half. I mean, there's, there's a picture in Revelation of a great white throne judgment where it says all the dead are going to be in this long line and there's going to be books opened, books of what people did in their lives and people are going to be judged according to what they have done. They will pay for their sins. There will be vengeance upon them. It says that day is coming and no one is going to be able to stand before holy God on the day of their judgment and make some kind of excuse for their sin. No one is going to be able to justify the evil of their actions. It says in Romans 3 that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, every mouth will be silenced. No one is going to be able to answer to God. There's a storm coming. It's going to wipe us all out. Nobody's going to be able to stop it. That's the picture Nahum's trying to paint. It's like if somehow you were some kind of a scientist, some kind of geologist, and you figured out how to predict earthquakes. Let's just go with that for a second. And you knew 
that there was going to be a 7.6 earthquake on the Richter scale and the epicenter was going to be right here in the middle of our building on 5082 Argosy Avenue. And you heard that I was going to preach for another 10 minutes and the earthquakes happen, happening right now. Like you know, this ceiling is going to fall and we are all going to be flattened. What would you do? Would you just run out the door for yourself? Or would you try to tell everybody else here in this room something that would be hard for them to believe, something that they would understand how you knew that and they wouldn't really make sense to them and you would seem like some raving lunatic standing up right now and shouting, there's going to be an earthquake. Everybody run. Get out while you can. Flee for your life. And everybody would look at you like, I'm sitting here. I'm comfortable. What are you talking about? See, if you love people and you know they're going to die, you know they're going to be destroyed, you know a disaster is coming, you warn them. That's what love does. You warn them. That's what Nahum's trying to do. Hey, he's vengeful. And I know he's slow to anger and I know he's got power to save, but nobody's getting away with it. So here's how I want you to think about it. There's a whirlwind and there's a storm and he's coming and man, the sea gets dried up and the earthquakes and nobody can stand before the storm of the wrath of the almighty God. So here's what I want you to do. Verse seven, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Here we have it, the double-double verse. Anybody ever had a double-double at In-N-Out Burger before? Right? God bless America and In-N-Out Burger. You ever look at your wrapper? Nahum 1-7. There it is right there. That's what you've been eating all those years. Double-double. Right? The Lord is good. I thought he was vengeful. I thought he was coming as a storm. I thought there was no way of escape. No, there is one way of escape. There is one way out of the coming judgment. And it's saying, in kind of an interesting twist here, that the Lord, who's coming to judge, who's bringing all the vengeance, he's actually also the stronghold. He's actually also the refuge. The way to be saved from the wrath of God is by God. If you go to him and trust in him and find safety in him, that's the idea here. There's a storm coming. You better find a place to hide. Here's a good shelter. Here's a place that will keep you alive. Go to God. He'll protect you. Turn back from your sin now and go to him, and he'll watch over you and keep you safe. It's somebody fleeing from a natural disaster and he's saying, here comes the storm. You better run into the shelter now. You better find a refuge right now. And where are you going to find that refuge? In the Lord. The Lord is good. See, the only place that we can escape the judgment that is to come is the one place where the judgment already came and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the one shelter that's the one hope there is. There's a place where God has already taken vengeance. A place where he's already poured out his fury and his almighty wrath. And he poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father forsook the son so that people who forsake the son could come to the father. It's an amazing thing. You hit his kid with the car. And there's a puddle of blood and you continued on in your sin. And he judged his son for you. And you, there's a refuge right now. You could run into it tonight. There's a shelter. The storm's coming. But you maybe have enough time. If you start running right now, you might get into the refuge before the storm hits. And where are you going to go? To the Lord. To the storm, actually. No, he's good. And if you go to him now, he'll keep you safe. He'll protect you because he already poured out judgment. He has to judge. It's who he is. He has to take vengeance. He can't let anybody just get away with it. No, he poured out that wrath on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took the wrath for you. And so if you go and you cling to that cross and you hide in the shadow of that cross, you will be saved because judgment has already come there and you won't have to be judged again. See, Nahum sends this message that a storm is coming out of the desire that people would seek refuge and find a stronghold in the Lord before it is too late. Why do you tell people that judgment is coming? So they can be saved now. That's the point. People give the minor prophets a bad rap because they talk about avenging God and they talk about wrath that is coming. You know why they talked about it? Because they wanted the nation they were speaking to to be saved. This is the kind of message we need in America right now, that a great storm is coming. 
But tonight, you could find a refuge. You could find a stronghold. If you cling to the cross, that's point number three. Let's get that down. To cling to the cross. And maybe tonight is the night that you realize you're, you're that spider. And you're in the hand of the Lord. And you could still fall into the fire. Because you are continuing in sin, you're afraid there's judgment coming on you. Well, tonight is the night for you to go to the refuge where judgment already came. The one safe place is there under the cross of Jesus Christ. And let me just encourage you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, for many years, and you feel confident you're not going to hell, well, there's one reason you're not going to hell. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. So keep clinging to that. Keep holding on to that. Keep putting all of your faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus is a safe place in the storm of the wrath of God. God, we come to you tonight and we beg you that you will turn our nation <coughs> back to you. God, we beg you for the souls of people who are even here in this room tonight. God, I am sure that there are people who know they have not clinged to the cross. The cross isn't the center of their life. Jesus isn't the one that they worship. God, they're still continuing in sin. Maybe they've even heard the truth that Jesus died for them before. But after they heard that truth, they just kept on sinning, Lord. God, I pray that tonight you would put the fear of you in their hearts. And that they would see they don't want to experience the vengeance of the judgment that you're going to bring for sin. And that they would cling to the cross of Jesus Christ tonight. That they would flee to a refuge. That they would find a stronghold in the day of calamity. It's not going to be long till the foot of America slips. Till we fall. If we continue on the path that we're on. And God, I pray that people would turn around before it's too late. And God, I pray for the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Those of us who have been saved by the blood of Christ. Who the spirit of grace now indwells us. Hey, we, don't, we don't trample on the son of God. We lift high the son of God. And we worship him. God, I pray that you would give us a compassion for our fellow countrymen. I pray that we would care more about America in 2016 than we ever have before in our lives, God, and that it would break our hearts like it broke the Apostle Paul's. To think about people we know going into the fires of hell. And our hearts would go out to them, God, and we would ask you to save them, and we would pray to you with confidence, and we would beg you because you're gracious and merciful, because you are the judge. Because you are the one who has the power to save. God, that you would declare people righteous based on the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So God, stir up our hearts. Do an awakening here, God. We ask that you would be among us and that you would be moving tonight. Help people who are in sin to cry out to you for salvation. And help those of us who are saved to cry out to you for salvation, God. Hear one cry from us tonight that we want to see you. Save souls here in America and please answer us, God. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.